As we sit here telling stories Till it's quarter after three The details are so gory But that's how they're supposed to be And this waiter must be wondering If we're ever gonna leave Hey everybody, John Kim Fay here, and welcome to Talking at the Diner, the show where I meet up with a working musician or other creative type at a diner near them. Usually not near me. Well, sometimes it is. It, it just depends, okay? <laughs> What's with the big interrogation? I keyed, of course. Uh, tonight is a very special Talking at the Diner. This is episode 12. 12, baby! That may not sound like much to you, or just about any other human being, but for me, it means that I've been doing this show for a full year, having great conversations with my fellow musicians and getting to know their stories and their passions and their quirks. My guest today is Joe Trainer a fantastic veteran musician from my home state of Delaware, who, like me, has seen his share of ups and downs, playing in various bands, and evolving his way into what we can only hope is a life of fulfillment and happiness. Joe Trainer first landed on my radar as the frontman of the aptly named Joe Trainer Trio. His Ben Foldsy piano rock was a first state staple for a full decade in the earlier part of the 2000s, but then he moved into a different musical space entirely, forming the Rock Orchestra, an entity that features multiple large lineups of various musicians playing the music of classic bands that inform Joe's sensibilities, and perhaps some of those passions and quirks I mentioned a few moments ago. On top of all that... He's also a key member of the team over at Gable Music Ventures, the promotional juggernaut responsible for all kinds of events like the beloved Ladybug Festival. If you've never heard Joe Trainer, he sounds like this. Joe and I met up at the Marsh Road Diner in Wilmington, Delaware, and among other things, one of my favorite parts of this conversation has to do with both of us sharing what it's like to feel the inevitable pull of aging as a rock musician, and what our own strategies might be as we show no signs of stopping. Speaking of showing no signs of stopping, I want to take a quick second to thank all all of my Patreon subscribers for keeping not only this podcast, but my entire creative machinery in motion. And I ask you, as always, to please tell a friend. If you like anything about what I'm doing, either on this podcast, or musically speaking, or you're interested in the memoir I'm about to publish, The Yin and the Yang of It All, 
please spread the word. It means so much. I can tell you that I'm at the point where I'm deciding who to leave out of my acknowledgments section in this book, so you know it's getting very close. Um, that's all the uh, housekeeping I'm going to do on here. So without further delay, my friends, Romans and countrymen, please enjoy my chat with Joe Trainer right now, right here on Talking at the Dining. Everything is on the table. Talking at the diner. Are you familiar with this diner? Oh, probably too familiar with intimately. this diner. I haven't been here in a while, but yeah, it was definitely... So we used to go to the Golden Castle, which was up yes. on 202. Oh, I, I used to go there a lot. Um, I never liked the Golden Dove on 13. But then we used to go to Lucky, one. then Lucky's opened, yeah. and they would stay open late, so we used to go there a lot. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Hi. Two, please. Oh, okay. Great. I think the last time I was here um, was after the show with the Queen. I think it was with Ike. Oh, really? Yeah, because Brett and, Brett and Susie... We're here. Oh wow! We all were so, sitting at that so it big was that table. long ago. They were they were yeah, still together. Exactly. Wow. Hi. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Welcome. I actually, uh, you're talking about all the different diner options, or the, what was it? Golden Castle? Golden Castle. I remember being there uh, once. It was like my uh, my high school reunion was that weekend, yeah. and I invited everybody to come see Ike at the Logan House. Okay. And so, like a bunch of us, a bunch of my friends from high school, we all went to the <coughs> Golden Castle after the show, and there was like a full-on brawl that oh, occurred, which was, you know, so I don't know if you remember, there was like a little a dessert uh, uh, case yes. tower thing. Right. The, I was like, the, these would be perfect for my Star Wars toys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, the brawl just like completely like flew into this dessert no. case and like it's like out of a movie. It was it was great. <laughs> I can't tell you how many nights I spent sitting in that place until two, three in the morning with yeah. Jill Knapp, just uh, yeah. talking. Like twenty years ago when we first met. Yeah, yeah. Um, you guys have known each other twenty years. Yeah, two thousand two, wow. two thousand three. That's amazing. Almost, almost twenty years. No, we. Um, I think we both were in long-distance relationships at the time, so we were just hanging out. I gotcha. You know, killing the time and uh, getting to know each other, and because obviously we connected pretty easily. Right. On. You know, on absolutely. Drink? Uh, I'll just take a water, please. Would you like a little bit? Yeah, okay. that'd be great. Do you have a uh, decaf? Coffee? Yeah. Yes, I actually just brewed a pot. Perfect. Thank Are you. you. Um, Fresh brewed decaf. So yeah, just talking about God knows what, and I, I, I can, I can tell you the countless nights we were in there during prom season. Oh, so yes. the kids would come in at the prom completely shit-faced. Right. The guy's just ch desperately trying to keep the night together. Right. Trying to keep it all together yep. so that they can <laughs> exactly. leave the diner and move on to victory. <laughs> <laughs> that's, exactly, that's exactly right. What I also remember about the Golden Castle was the... 27 page menu it's like a tome like you're gonna go in there at two in the morning and be like i'd like the salmon like who's buying salmon <laughs> at the golden castle not me it was always a burger hey, or breakfast yeah but 
Cliff was in Tel Aviv this week? Yes. Um, well, he goes wherever That's the orchestra gets a gig. And crazy. It is pretty wild, you know. I'm I mean, good for him. I, I, uh, do you know Glenn Burtnick? I, I don't know him personally. Don't no. Know him personally? No. I don't know what I mean, he his is. name's been, a, like, in the, you know, the ether for decades, though. I mean, I definitely know that he's a pretty big It's funny, name. because I'm as a... I'm a, a pretty huge Styx fan. Okay. Yeah, so he was in Styx for a while. And that's where I first yeah. encountered him, right? right. The um, And I was, I'm was i a big fan of Tommy Shaw. I'm not a big fan of Dennis DeYoung. I like some Dennis DeYoung songs, Sweet Man on Blue, Rockin' in Paradise, great. Mm-hmm. But it just got loungier and loungier as he got into the career. Yes. And then he... Obviously, shit to bed with Kilroy. What about what about JY? Not a. Not <laughs> I like JY. Like I don't mind Miss America and the Are handful you? of JY. What I always found out about the, the JY songs that I always liked was that it always, for some reason, ended up having a D Young keyboard solo. So oh, some okay. of the JY songs have the best. They brought out the best in Dennis. Dennis. Keyboard yeah. solos, uh, home wrecker off of uh, off of uh, the one Burtnick's on the uh, edge of the century. That keyboard solo is awesome. Okay. I'm fascinated that you're such a big Six fan because I was a fan when I was pretty young. I owned Grand Illusion. That sure. was the first great one. record, and then uh, Pieces of Eight. Okay, record in my opinion. And then what was after that one? Cornerstone. It was Cornerstone where they lost me. <laughs> yes, because it had Babe on it. Babe, I'm leaving. I must be on my way. Oh, Babe, I'm leaving. Right. And then right. the next, song, got the really next album, though, was Paradise. Mm-hmm. And that's a great record. And that's actually where I came in on the stick story, right? Because I'm at the age where Rockin' to Paradise and Best of Times, I was all over MTV. Okay, so, yeah. Is, so that, what's, is that too much time on my hands? Yeah, exactly. Also, yeah. And then the next album was Kilroy, and, and then they right. kind of disappeared, right? But then they released that live album called Caught in the Act, which is amazing. Like, okay. it, it's a, like it encapsulates everything cool about Sticks, in my opinion. Huh. Then they went on hiatus, and then they came back with Edge of the Century, and that had Burtnick. That was a pretty good record, and even though Tommy was on it, I liked what Glenn did. So I was like, I'm here. I'm here for it. Okay. He's got a great song on air called um, All in a Day's Work, and it's one of the best, like, the Burtnick songs on the couple albums he did. Mm. Fan. Nice. And they don't. Maybe maybe somebody listens saying, "Well, that could not be a stick song, just as easily as it is." Like really great songwriting. So funny story. So I'm living in South Florida, 1999 to 2000. I'm only down there for a year. And um, I heard Sticks was playing at the Pompano Raceway as part of their summer concert series. Nice. Right in the parking lot. This is 99. How warped tour of them. <laughs> right? It cost $5 to get in, and three of that was a betting slip. Wow. So I saw sticks for two hours, a, or two dollars. They did a 90 minutes blistering set. So it was like... What a bargain. It was, uh, what, Todd uh, Zuckerman, JY, Tommy, Burtnick, and Gowan. So, so Dennis DeYoung's out. And I'm like, and the Pinozo brothers are not uh, involved. Yeah, I don't think I don't think John, well John John was out. I think John had passed by then, but Chuck oh, I think was did. not at that show. Okay. I have seen Chuck with him now, but like, 
It was a blistering 90 minute set. I saw Sticks <laughs> on a co-headlining tour with Yes. Now, Yes oh is one gosh. of my favorite bands, like top five. I went, Sticks put on, again, another blistering 90 minute set. They left. Yes came on. They were so bad. I left. I've, I've seen Yes eight times. I've never walked out of a show. I've never what, walked out of what, a concert in my what life. What made them so bad? Their singer, prior to the one they have now, so they had John Anderson, he yeah. left, and then they got, I always get his name on, name wrong, David Benoit, I think is his name, or oh, Benoit ben- David. But, yeah, okay. And then now they have a guy named John Anderson, no, John... Not Wouldn't Anderson, it be John, funny if no, it's not John another Anderson. John Anderson. John Davison. That's why I get it mixed up. So it's John Davison. And he's pretty good. He's no John that sounds. That sounds made up. <laughs> I know, right? They did Yours is No Disgrace. So I had to sit through 14 minutes of that, mm. right? And I love the song, but it's got this hackett guitar solo in the middle of it. Anyway, then he did Tempest Fugit. So on the record, it's like, bop, 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 and here it was like, bum, 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 they were kind of... All my 10th graders could play this, guys. Like, uh. you got to speed it up. And then they did Heart of the Sunrise, and the singer kept cracking. And I'm like, uh, I can't watch he this He couldn't anymore. do it. And that's the only show you ever walked out on. Yeah. And then, fortunately, I saw Anderson with Raven and Wakeman in Philadelphia in 2019. And it redeemed everything. It's like, what an amazing show that it had. It had to be redeemed. Yes. It's funny. I, I had never walked out on a show in my life, and then I... I actually walked out on the Lemonheads last November. Really? Which is interesting because they're one of my favorite bands. Like, the thing about it was I had seen Evan Dando solo before, so I knew kind of like what his vibe was. Okay. Which is he's taken a lot of drugs unapologetically. (laughs) And it's now at the point in his life where it, you know. And what is he in his 60s? He's just a little slow. I guess so. I mean, probably. You know, it seems weird to say that, but probably. Okay. And also, uh, a, a, a local band from Philly that I like a lot was opening. And if it weren't for the fact that they were playing before the Lemonheads, I probably wouldn't have even gone to the show necessarily. Even though I really love the Lemonheads. But actually, like the first half an hour or forty minutes of their show was fantastic. It was like almost like a song by song replica of a playlist I had made for myself the nice. day before to like get back into it. <laughs> so they knew what to play. And I was like, this is great. They're playing all my favorite songs. And then he starts to play cover songs, which they're known to do. Now, they have a couple that are pretty well known, like mm-hmm. Mrs. Robinson was like their breakout right, right, hit. Right. Um, nobody in the band knew how to play Mrs. Robinson. Uh, just bad chords, not really singing the right words. I was like, all right, uh, um, it's giving me pause at that point. Right. And then they start to go into Luca by Suzanne Vega. Sure. Which was also not good. And I was like, oh man, this is like really bumming me out because the show was so good up to this point. Yeah, sure. And he's like, it's all, and I like, love these guys. Like, is, come on. Like, is he intentionally derailing this? Now, how many people are in the audience? It's at Underground Arts, so it's at least... I mean, it's a pretty packed show. I would say six to seven hundred people okay. are present. Um, and then, are you, are you familiar with their catalog? I'm not. Okay, so they have a song called Style. 
But then they have another version of that same song on that album called Rick James Style, because Rick James is on it. Okay. And it's a very slow, dirty, drugged out version of the other song called Style. Okay. And they are playing the Rick James Style rendition of it. And it's just like seven minutes of like draggy, you know, you, you need to be on heroin to, to dig it. <laughs> Why? And I was like, you know what? And this was the night before Thanksgiving. I was like, I'm, I'm like having a conversation in my own head. I was like, you know what? I'm good. I saw my friends. I saw 40 minutes of good music. <laughs> I can leave. Yeah, right. so, I, so I walked out. Got and my money's And then I, as I was I'm walking back to my car, which was a substantial distance because the parking situation there is not good. I was like, I've never walked out on a concert like that before in my life. And I was like, interesting. <laughs> wow. Well, the irony about walking out on, yeah. So, uh, also, interestingly, I was at that show with Jill Knapp. And we both, I said, I can't stay here anymore. I got to go. She gets like, all right, let's go. So we leave. And it's in Camden. So do you know, oh, and we at, parked at in the, Philly and took the, the, you took the ferry. First time I'd ever done that, which was pretty cool. Yeah. So we had to go and wait for the ferry. We ended up hearing we ended up hearing the whole show from the dock. Right. Anyway. Yeah. But it was just like I just can't I can't watch this train wreck happen. Gotcha. But it also leads to an interesting perspective, which is the aging musician, right? Yeah, that is an interesting. <laughs> Let's so, talk about that. <laughs> I mean, something I think both of us are acutely aware of and getting yeah. more acutely aware of it every day. I am. Yeah. Um, I saw my favorite band on the planet is Genesis, mm -hmm. and I saw them. I saw them in '86 and '87. I saw them in '93, and then I saw them when they reunited with Phil in 2007. So they had done an album with another singer in '90. I'm sorry, in '97, hmm. and it failed. It failed so bad that they canceled the U.S. tour. Wow! And the album is not very good at all. So in 07, Phil came back. They had they had, had a meeting with Steve Hackett and Peter Gabriel about going back out as a five-piece again. Oh, wow. Just to do The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Yeah. Do a quick tour. And, of course, Peter's always up and down everywhere, so he couldn't commit to it. Mm -hmm. So they eventually were like, screw it. Let's just go back out as a three-piece. We'll do the hits. We'll do some deeper cuts. Right. And I went to that show at Wells Fargo, and it felt like the goodbye that we never had. Because gotcha. right? Phil had left the band for a while. And they didn't release an album, so they were just like, let's just do a nice mix of tunes. So they did a really great cross-section of their career. Of course, they did Land of Confusion and I Can't Dance, but then they also did like Ripples. And they did In the Cage. And they did some of the longer and some older pieces. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, this is brilliant. This is brilliant. And I left that show just feeling so satisfied, right? <clears throat> and then everybody, most people know they toured this year. They, they started mm -hmm. to tour right before the pandemic, and then they postponed shows till after the pandemic. Right. And they came through Philadelphia, and I, I, you know, with YouTube, you can preview anything you want. Right. What happened last week on this tour? Exactly. <laughs> so I'm watching it, and Phil, Phil isn't physically well. So, like, like his, his leg. He's he, kind of his, frail. Well, he's got a bum leg. Okay. So he walks with a cane, and he, um, and he sits for the show, and he can't drum anymore. So his his son Nick is drumming, 
phenomenal drummer. Yeah. Does a fantastic job. Everybody's all these all these great drummers. They just train their kid to take I know, over. Right? <laughs> and I don't care that that they're old or that he was sitting, but they brought keys down significantly, <laughs> which to me, and like I'll bring the key down a half step, maybe a whole step. As long as you're still pushing at the very top of your range, because that's yeah. the thing, right? Because that's where you get the emotion from, is when you're pushing. Mm -hmm. But he had brought it down, and we're like, well, screw it. Let's make it so that I can get through the tour without hurting myself. And he brought it down so low, there was no energy in the material. Got it. So my brother went, I know Matt Urban went, a few other people I know, and they were like, we did it. We saw it. Like, they were just like... Check off your bucket list. Exactly. Thing. I did not go. Because I couldn't bring myself to watch it. Yeah, you didn't want that previous experience to be tainted. Overshadowed. Yeah. Um, they're apparently not releasing it on video, which is a shame, because I would like to see... I'd like to see it from a technical standpoint. Because from what I could tell on YouTube, they did some really cool stuff with the lights and mm -hmm. the backdrops. Um, but I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to go. Somebody had a ticket if I wanted to go, and then we both got covid wigged uh, like maybe we shouldn't yeah. so we didn't but um but i don't have any regrets but it just like springsteen's going back out see 72 and uh i just saw an interview with i say it wrong manukachi the drummer for peter gabriel so i'm curious about the gabriel tour like i'm intrigued by that because he hasn't released a record in 20 years and i didn't see that tour Hmm. So, like, part of me is like, am I going to go see a 73-year-old Peter Gabriel on this tour? Like, there's a... Yeah. I don't think that artists should quit. I think if you want to go play music, you've earned a right to go play happy. music. Yeah. Right? Um, but I also but you, am like, I'm not going to go <laughs> because I can't bring myself yeah, to you watch. you can't expect everybody to be, like, you know, clamoring to see that either, you know? Yeah, like, Paul, some, well, Paul McCartney's out there right now. Ringo Starr started I his mean, tour, and he's 81 years old. And I saw footage from that, and he, you can't tell. He looks 69. Yeah. I think it just depends on how healthy you are. As a, I don't think it's... I mean, obviously, age catches up to everybody eventually. Of course it does. I mean, let's, let's bring our own selves into the conversation around this. How are you scary conversation. How are you feeling about where this is all headed <laughs> and are you feeling effects currently well I lost my voice with COVID mm -hmm. and it's taken me a while to get it back I feel like I'm I used to have C's for days Listen. now I'm struggling to get to a B flat I'll say this you sounded great on that Zeppelin song that Shine a Light it was pretty killer. I had to really work to get that back up to speed. That's an easy Zeppelin song for me. Okay, well, but I felt like I really worked for that. And I almost didn't do it. I almost passed it off to somebody else because I was starting to get afraid of it. Because hmm. I never want to embarrass myself. No. Um, we just did a Genesis show. The Rock Orchestra just did two. One, in, one at the Grand and one down in Milton Theater. Oh, nice. And... The second half of Abacab is way up there. Man on the corner, like it or not, he gets way up there. And I had to beg off some of those notes and change some things around. Really? I kind of wanted to take it down a key, but that would have affected the technology 
in a way that worried everybody. So I'm like, I'll suck it up, guys, and we'll get through it. Explain that a little more for me. Like, how does it, what, how so would it affect the technology? Two things. If you, and you know this part, is that if you detune a guitar too much, mm-hmm. it doesn't play the way it should. Yeah. Or at least doesn't feel the way it should. There's a le- They have pedals for that now. They do. There's three or four... Um, Brett uses it. I think I think Joe Testa has that too. The drum... There's four songs that use drum machines. And it's the old... I don't know. Yamaha C7 something, blah, blah, blah. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Whatever Phil used. They have emulators for that now. So our drum machine patterns on like... Me and Sarah Jane and Man on the Corner sounded just like the record. Because they're the same sounds. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw... When I saw Genesis on the 07 tour, they did Mama. Hmm. And Mama starts with... That's tuned to an E. And then Tony came in in the key of D, and it just hurt my brain. (laughs) So if you do it, you have to detune the drums. I got it. Drum machines. Everything has a match. Got it. It just would have been a nightmare for Brian, Mm -hmm. our keyboard player, so... I was like, I'll suck it up, y'all. But um, I, I worry. Um, well, I mean, I definitely see where you're coming from because, I mean, you are one of those vocalists that chooses challenging material for yourself. Well, and I kind of build a reputation on, oh, my God, that guy's got a really high voice. Mm-hmm. And I knew that that, that wave was going to crest at some point. It's just inevitable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so we started the rock orchestra and I was like, alright, I'm 47. I don't know what the next five years hold for my voice, let alone the next ten. It's bucket list of shit. What are we doing? Mm-hmm. So we started picking shows and I'm like, so we did a lot of shows that were really hard and I'm like, I can throw Bowie later because right. I'll be able to You'll sing be able that to later. Do that. <laughs> So I'm getting some of those things out of the way. But the whole point of the rock orchestra is eventually not sing. Hmm. Or not sing every show. I want to build it as an entity, not as a band. Did you start the rock orchestra while Joe Trainer Trio was still full speed ahead? Or was it... I was pumping the brakes on the trio. Okay. Um, we had... I lost my mojo. As an original artist. And there's a couple of reasons for When you that. say that, was it from a creative standpoint or a motivational, you know, must press on? I'll say between 2000 and 2010, I probably wrote 50 songs. And between 2010 and 2020, I maybe wrote five, six songs. Yeah. So, after we released our second album in, in 2012... I maybe only wrote like four or five songs after that and hated them. Like I just... And two things happened. I went through a series of crappy relationships, which you know will spawn great writing. Or at least <laughs> You're passionate not happy, writing. Joe. Well, and the joke was, and you know Kevin Nimi, the bass mm-hmm. player, he was, he, he was used to tell Carrie, please break up with Joe so he'll write some music. <laughs> the band depends on this. Right. But I was very happy, so I didn't have 
the inclination, and I don't know how to write happy. Like, I can write fictitious, but the drama, which I don't thrive on drama, but when you have drama in your life, that's a huge catalyst for passionate writing. Yeah. For just wanting to be creative. Exactly. You want to get it out. Mm -hmm. And I've written some great songs, a great to me, in my darkest moments, you mm -hmm. know? And they were very therapeutic and, and very... Um, yeah, they just, they help me through those things. Yeah. Because I can go back and, and explore those emotions on stage with those songs. Before the rock orchestra, there, Matt and I were in a band called In the Light. I did my first tribute in 2004. We did Pink Floyd's The Wall. That was just a pet project. Didn't think much of it. But even then, I was like, I don't want to do Pink Floyd with this band again. Let's do something else. But it fell apart. Mm -hmm. I formed the trio... I've been in original bands since the 90s. My first band formed in 92. It was called March. Okay. We were basically a neo-prog band. And did you always live in Delaware? Or yeah. Did, okay. Except for the one year I lived in Florida. Okay. So we did. We were playing places like Poncho Harris and the Lucky Horse. Mm -hmm. and, and we're going in there playing nine-minute progressive rock pieces to a bar that could not give a shit <laughs> but they were just like, you should be playing Pearl Jam. And they were right. I mean, if we wanted to be like everybody else, we would have done that. Or if we wanted to be successful. Anyway, we wrote like 50 songs during the period of that band from 92 to 99. Mm -hmm. Never recorded them. We recorded demos. I had an eight-track reel-to-reel in the basement. We'd, I, I would create drum, not patterns, but like full drum scores yeah. in my chord. Then we'd record the song to them. So I had working demos of all the songs. We went down to see the Mosses down at Target, never recorded them. Because we didn't have the money, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. I joined X-Fusion, and it's a, basically an instrumental prog fusion band. Hmm. I'm like, okay. Then it wanted to be a cover band, and then it wanted to be an original band. And after a while, I'm just like, I cannot deal with the schizophrenic nature of this thing. <laughs> Let's figure out what we are. Right. I'm out. And in 2007, that's when I formed the trio because I was sitting on a backlog of what I felt were more accessible songs. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I want to do this as a piano trio. I was finally getting into Ben Folds. And I'm like, nobody's doing this here. Yeah. And the only way I'm going to be able to set myself apart is if we're not doing the thing. I mean, that's pretty much my do. introduction to you. It was like, oh, that guy's got like a trio and they're kind of Ben Foldy. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and, it was a, and it was a calculated thing. Like, mm -hmm. nobody's doing this. And when we would go play gigs where we had to play covers, we weren't playing Billy Joel and Elton John. We were playing Radiohead, mm -hmm. Green Day, Zeppelin. So in 2008, we headlined the Arden Fair because hmm. I convinced them to book us. We were still relatively unknown. I, mean, I knew people. I knew like Joe Del Tufo was on the concert committee, and I knew him and Matt Urban from working at the Grand together. Mm -hmm. I said, we're going to do Led Zeppelin two without a guitar player. And they're like, done. So we did. I went in and two JT3 songs, and then we played all of Led Zeppelin two without a guitar player. Amazing. And 450 people, and I feel lost their goddamn minds. That's awesome. And solidified our reputation. Mm -hmm. So after that, we played a bunch of gigs at Arden. We did all these things. That kind of was a catalyst. The next day, we went into the studio to start recording our first record. So we rode that crest till about 2015. We did Abbey Road in there. We did Night of Abbey Road at Logan House. That was super successful. 
So when we did the Zeppelin II at Arden, Matt Irvin and Jodo Tufo said, we want to shoot your set. I'm like, okay, for free. Wow. So I got my brother to come out and multi-track record it. So I have a nice multi-track, multi-cam video of that show. Wow. And Matt Irvin came up to me and says, I've always dreamed of doing physical graffiti. Would you want to do that? I'm like, sure, you put a band together, I'll come sing it. And did. <laughs> and that became In the Light. 2011. Gotcha. But I told them then, I said, I don't want to be a Zeppelin band. We'll do the show. And if everything works out, let's talk about what our next show is going to be. Let's do something different. Mm-hmm. So we did Physical Graffiti. The next year we did Queen at the Queen. Hmm. I was with a 30-piece choir. We had four guitar players on stage. We were note for note, that shit. And then we did The Who. Mm-hmm. Then two Pink Floyd records. And then some of us did a Genesis show, which was a catalyst as well. Okay. Yeah, great. Yes, thank, thank you. you. And then, unfortunately, our bass player passed away. Oh, no. Christian Salcedo. Oh, yes. The guy car. that uh, was, yeah, got it. And that's when Matt and I were like, we need to switch it up. Because as we were going, the, in the late was six members. Mm-hmm. And it kept every year it kept getting harder and harder for us to agree on what to do. Right. We had agreed to do an Eagle show, and we were getting ready to start rehearsals for that when Christian passed. We went through with that show, bringing in friends who played bass. Mm-hmm. And then we folded that band. And then Matt and I said, here's the plan. We're going to form an entity. Because what had happened, when we wanted to do the Genesis show, our guitar player was like, I'm not that in Genesis. It doesn't speak to me. I like it, but I don't want to spend the time to learn it. I'm right. like, fair enough. I said, but it we is want, a commitment. But we want to call it In the Light. We want it to be under that umbrella. And he's mm-hmm. like, well, that doesn't make sense because I'm also one-sixth of In the Light. And I'm like, okay, but every time we want to do a new artist, we can't come up with a new name for the band. So the idea was we would create the rock orchestra, and it would be known for doing a variety of Mm -hmm. tributes. So that's how that was born, and then I set it up. The idea is very much like the Delaware Symphony or City Theater Company, where it's like we pick a season, we book all of our shows, we promote our entire season over the course of the year, Mm -hmm. and um, we cast it. Every show is going to have different players involved based on their strengths. So, and it's been going swimmingly. It's brilliant. I, it's, it's a great idea. And I get to play with all kinds of people. It's not insular. Mm-hmm. It's not as big as Shine Light as far as, but like doing Shine Light was a huge introduction to tons of musicians I would never have gotten an opportunity to play with, mm-hmm. ever. Because bands are so insular. Right. Ironically, when we went into the pandemic, I was like, maybe now I can write something. Mm-hmm. You know, Trump's president. We're in a pandemic. I have lots to be The world is burning. Maybe I can add my voice to that. We can skirt past my whole disillusion with the original music scene in general as an artist. I'm sure you go through this too, where you're like, I could do this, but who gives a shit? And at least Mm. I struggle with that. Like, I'm going to go through all this effort and eight people are going to like it. And I don't know if that's enough for me. Yeah, I don't know if that's how I personally look at it. I mean... To backtrack slightly, I think that I was probably holding on to a certain idea of how I could navigate my career for probably a lot longer than I should have. Once I hit 40, I was still like, let's go, let's do this. You know, Mm -hmm. like it was still pedal to the metal. I mean, I think between like 1999 and 20. 
14, there's probably like 10 albums, full-length albums in that period of time. Sure, sure. And I was really... You're talking about between Ike and Power Trip and John and Brittany and all Meddling Kids, yeah, all that. all of it. And so my mentality was still like a functioning entity in the music business, meaning that something could happen. You still felt like you were a viable commodity. Right. Got it. At some point, and I don't, I don't know if I can put my finger on it, a, 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 a something flipped in my brain where I was like, well... I think the more that I give a shit, the worse this is going to go. Caring, like, if it's commercial, if it's viable, if it's whatever. Because my natural tendency is to write catchy songs. Sure. So it's always going to appeal to a certain part of a listener's brain in one way or another. But I, I just started to really kind of emotionally separate myself from feeling like it had to matter to other people. You know what I mean? Okay, sure. So now, I, I can truthfully say that I, I don't care if eight people like it. I mean, I guess it'll, it'll sting a little bit if literally only eight people like something I do. I, I feel like the less I worry about my viability, the more people actually are into it. I think it's got to go back to what motivated you to become an artist to begin with. So for me, it came from being bullied. Mm. So I was like, look at me now. Look what I can do. Right. So seventh and, seventh and eighth grade were a nightmare for me. Mm. Ninth grade, I went to a new school. And in the interim, I had not only taught myself how to play piano, but I taught myself, this is 84, so I taught myself to play all those ballads the girls liked. So I'm sitting in the chorus room or whatever, singing Purple Rain and Small <laughs> Eyes and all mm-hmm. these songs. And the girls are like, oh, all right. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Thank you very much. Do you mind getting into like your experience with being bullied? What what did that stem from, do you think? Just being a target. I just made mm-hmm. myself a target. I was the smallest and weakest of the group. Really? Um, I think um, I think you learned valuable lessons along the way. And one of the lessons I learned, it took me late in life to learn it, but I learned it, is that it's more important to want than to need. And I felt I needed to be included with these four or five other guys. Mm-hmm. So I was part of that group. But I realized, I realized too late that they were keeping me around as the target. Right. You always They always need somebody to feel superior to. Right. And it came to a head one day with an embarrassing incident. Mm. And, um, and it was just kind of the breaking point for me. Like, my mom got involved. It was a whole thing. Oh, wow. But I will tell you this. That was eighth grade. And, and kids are assholes. Like the worst, I, I the worst of all grades. <laughs> and when I look back, I'm like, I'd have picked on me, too. Right? Mm-hmm. But um, only because I was a hot mess. So, I have run into those four guys over the course of the last in 30 years. Mm-hmm. And actually, not in the last 20, but probably within the first 10 after leaving high school. And they all sought me out to apologize. Individually. Every single one of them. And I was like, and so it's so, in hindsight, I'm like, it's nice that we all grew up. And I never, I didn't hold the grudge. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but he motivated me in a lot of ways yeah. because and I was like I'm gonna I'm I now have to do something nobody else can do right everybody play guitar nobody play piano so I'm like that's what I want to do and to me all of the cool ballads were piano based faithfully and mm -hmm. whatever like it was piano so I I dove deep and then my buddies turned me on to yes and Genesis and I was like oh that does fantastic so I, I started building my speed mm -hmm. then became more well-rounded as a keyboard player but I never really took a lesson or anything yeah. I took a couple well but it's all about that motivation so I started to write as a way to express myself as everybody does mm -hmm. but if nobody heard it I couldn't just write for me I got you I had to write and share it with people so they knew I needed that you just want them to know who you are. <laughs> validation. Yeah. Well, which brings me to another point. What what motivated you? What, what do you feel um, like your big motivation was? At 15, 30, well, and 40. Oh, wow. Well, I think my relationship with music starts really young because, I mean, morbid as it sounds, it, it's so earth-shattering when your father dies when you're little, sure. which happened when I was six and a half. Oh, sorry so I had three older half-sisters who were music fans. So I had a little bit of a early education in pop music as through their lens. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's a lot, of, a lot of Beatles, a lot of Beach Boys, a lot of early 70s songwriter types, your Cat Stevens, your Janice Ian, your Carol King. I love how I came from a feminine perspective, though. Mm -hmm. So oh, yeah. your introduction came that, through... Well, I mean, um, as I have thought back about my early life, you know, in the process of, like, writing my book, for sure. example, it really hit home for me. If there's a group of four dudes over there and a group of four girls in this booth, I'm in this booth. This is where I want to be. This is where I almost relate <laughs> much more deeply to what those conversations are probably right. like. Um, and it it has everything to do with just basically being raised by my sisters. Sure. Uh, until one of my sisters got a boyfriend, you know, when I was like, 11 or 12, there was no other male figure around. Mm -hmm. It was my mom and the three of them. So it, it really sort of informed just how I see things and, and perceive right. situations and stuff like that. So music becomes like a big um, escape mechanism early on. Also because of other circumstances uh, in my life, racial makeup and the time and place. Sure. Um, it was a very isolating period of time for a lot of reasons. I can see that. So to be quite honest, I had a band in my head for years before I even picked up an instrument. I did too, for yeah. different reasons, but mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And so it became this slow progression, like all the things that I kind of got myself involved with. Between like um, seventh and ninth grade, I had a couple of friends who had the same kind of creative tendencies with no particular talent. <laughs> right. Um, my mother got me a, a movie camera. Like I asked for a Super 8 movie camera. Really? In the, in the, in the 
the Christmas season of 1978 into 79. Okay. And within a year, my friends and I were making movies. And so in our first movie, we're in a band. None of us can play anything. (laughs) Within about a year of that, some of the kids that were kind of part of this little collective of the kids that we would make the movies with, a couple of them like started playing guitar. So really the, the, the moment that like I actually picked up an instrument, my one friend, um, had a little um, piecemeal drum kit in his basement. So I bought that drum set from him for $40, and that was my, that was my introduction into playing music. I guess in my fantasy band, I, I actually always imagined that I was lead guitar, which never materialized. <laughs> but eventually, I became a drummer mm-hmm. and f- formed what is arguably the roots of the Caulfields in, in high school because the, the lead guitar player from the Caulfields was, went to the same school. He was two years older than me and my friends were. And the, the story is his cover band needed a drummer for a battle of the bands. And they were called the Normandy Beach Boys, <laughs> which I, like, I love the name. <laughs> That's fantastic. And so we played this, I think it was at, uh, it might've been at, at Dickinson High School. Wow. They had this battle of the bands. The set list was, uh, you know, you talk about schizophrenic. It was, I believe it was uh, So Lonely by the Police, mm-hmm. uh, Take It Easy by the Eagles. Um, wow. The lead guitarist uh, did Eruption in its entirety. You got to. <laughs> which you got to do. Um, I believe we played Allison by Ellis Costello. It was like the gamut. I thought you were going to say Alice's Restaurant. I'm like, ooh, that is. (laughs) Then they have 26 minutes of that. Right. Um, And of course, we lost to, um, we uh, we lost to uh, Chris Malinowski's band, Purgatory, who just just slaughtered everybody. I bet they did. I mean, I didn't know who he was at the time. Sure. He was just like this little kid in like red spandex. They had their act down Mm -hmm. i mean it was just like uh we're not gonna we're not gonna beat these guys you know me and uh mike simpson the guy who eventually became the guitarist in the caulfields we looked at each other and we were like it ain't happening for us they played balls to the wall by accept (laughs) and we were like all right it's over (laughs) we came in Third, I think we we came in third, okay. which is which for a schizophrenic set was not bad, I guess. My first show, quick side mm-hmm. note: Day Tripper, Abacab, <laughs> Spirit of Radio, Go for Soda by Kim Mitchell. I don't even know what that is. I'll have to I, look it up. <laughs> you will. Go You'll for have so- to. Canadian guy. Okay. Had a minor hit. Probably around. Yeah, 82, 81. Wow. I love that song, so we learned it. Go for soda. I love it. Good title. Where were we? Oh, so now my question to you, though, is this. When you were 15 years old, mm-hmm. it was... I want the brass ring. 
I want to play the Spectrum. I want to go on tour. I want to hit record. I want girls. Yeah, and I, I, I think I was pretty ambitious right? about it from from the from jump because um, you know the little embryo starts in high school. Right. When it came time to like pick where we were all going to college, I definitely selected University of Delaware specifically to keep that band together. That right. was my ambition. Like sure. I didn't know. I mean, I had no interest in what I was going to study or anything like that. And so we became like a band at University of Delaware. And within a couple of years of that, we were somewhat of a known entity around mm -hmm. town. And by that point, it was like, this is what we do. All of us wanted in, you know. So I think when you're 14, 15 years old, especially if you're watching MTV or whatever, mm -hmm. you're like, yeah, I want to be a rock star. Because you have a concept of what that means. Because you're 14. You don't mm -hmm. know that it means sleeping on buses and, and or if you're lucky mm -hmm. and the drugs yeah the, and the, the, the work that goes yes. into it is not part of the and the uh, things you calculus. have to do to get there right mm -hmm. which you can speak to much more than i can because you actually achieved the label and the tour right i'm in the one percent so <laughs> right exactly so i think but i what i find interesting but you're also a testament to how hard it is to maintain such a thing Right. I mean, it is, it is so unlikely for bands to get there, and then it's even less likely for them to be able to stay. To stay. Length of time. Yeah. Like anything in life, so many things that we don't even realize have to go right for something to actually for happen. For other things to happen, right. <laughs> and so, so many things did just kind of like happen in a way that was quite unorthodox. I mean, we didn't get our deal the way I would imagine most bands at the time were getting deals because A&R was going into different cities and looking for like, well, who's the hottest band in town? We can sign them. Right. The Caulfields were never that. Ever. Right. Things had plateaued to a point and we, we were, all of us were like 10 years in by that point. Right. You know? probably like 26, 27, still working shit jobs, you know, like five years out of college. Families being like, is this what you do? Are you going to do something real here? You know? Right. So, because that's the other thing. Why break up a band if it's good? Unless you're like, this is the wrong path for me. I need to go find another path to reach my goal. Well, that's also part of it. But I think for me, I mean, I was also... Um, by that point in my life, I was, uh, so I met my uh, ex-wife when I was 20 and she was 19. So we were actually, to, had been together for seven years mm -hmm. before the Caulfields got a deal. So there's that factored into it. Like sure. her wanting our life as a couple to start in earnest. <laughs> to um, head in a, a direction that has been kind of stalled. Yes. Right. So... Um, that's that's a whole other aspect of it. So yeah, if if stuff didn't really happen at just that time, I would have had a very different life. Sure, but I think as you get older, you have to you gotta move your goalposts mm -hmm. to stay sane. I think if you are twenty, if you're thirty years old, and you still have the same dream of stardom that you had at 14 years old. You're delusional. In this business you are. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that 
for me anyway, I think I got to a point where I was like, okay, these are the things that are no longer in the cards for me. And I'm not saying they're impossible. I just recognize they were very unlikely to, to begin, begin with, with. <laughs> and they're less likely now. Mm-hmm. And also you have to be pretty self-aware. So I think that when you have, if you have a knowledge of what is popular, mm-hmm. and then you have a knowledge of what you do, and those things are not the same. The Venn diagram does not... Um... However, music is always evolving, mm-hmm. right? So... Yep. Right? So it you as an artist you're like, yeah, but I could be the next thing. Right? Maybe my sound is the thing that helps it evolve into what it will become. Mm-hmm. So you 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 put a lot of weight in yourself to be like, no, what I'm doing is interesting to me, it's gotta be interesting to other people. Um but at the same time you're also like, I'm not anywhere near what I what I what I the music I need to create to instantly become recognizable right. or to get on people's radars. So when you kind of align those things up and you say, okay, I'm older and my music isn't Britney Spears or, you know, whoever. Mm-hmm. So I now I have to reset my goalposts. Like, what, what is it going to take for me to become satisfied? Wait, well, what, what makes I'm, you happy? What What's going to make you happy? Well, I think that... Obviously, playing music makes me happy, right? Mm -hmm. Playing music for an appreciative audience makes me much happier. Much happier, right? (laughs) So I would never be truly happy just making music in my bedroom. Mm -hmm. Like, I I need that response. Which is why what you're doing is so brilliant, because you you are absolutely putting yourself in a position to achieve that every time you put on an event, you know? Right. Yeah. So that was because that was my next thing, right? So like, so for me, it was a matter of I'm going to have an original band. It's going to be more accessible. It's going to be different. No guitars, mm-hmm. right? We're going to go do all this stuff. I said I want two albums. I'm going to last ten years, hmm. and I'm going to see if I can open use that to open doors. Because most bands do an album and they fall apart locally, right? I was like, mm-hmm. I don't care if they're just local records. I just want to make two records, and I'm going to last ten years because bands aren't doing that. Mission accomplished on both fronts, yes. right? Mm-hmm. We also won a bunch of awards. Now, some people will say like, well, yeah, but it's just a homies, right? And not to minimize it, but like to me, those are my peers. Those, those are the are, people I admire. That's what I'm saying. Like, I think one of the things that's like a broader issue for me is how much... You know, at a certain at certain points in our life, like we 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 buy into like a certain mindset of what success should look like, exactly, and what you know what makes you valid or legitimate. Mm-hmm. I've always hated like the uh, the term like vanity project. It gets thrown around to you know at yeah, at people yeah. who like you know they're not going to sell a million copies. But, like, is that really... I don't see that as vanity. Like, vanity is living in a system where you need a million of anything to make you valid. (laughs) True, true. Yeah, no, right, right, right. You know what I mean? Like, if you're making something from the heart and, you know, it's connecting with anybody, regardless of the size of the, you know, like the pool of people... I think I've come to realize, like, that's all I ever wanted. 
was right. to connect with people because I felt so disconnected early in my life. Sure. And right. in a lot of ways, I, I in my in my more like militant private moments, and sometimes I have conversations with people about this stuff. It's like if you rattle off like. 20 things that are like embedded in popular culture probably 19 of those I'd be like nah I'm not into it right so why would it bother me if I don't connect to that broad mindset it doesn't bother me there's right. always going to be the like if you if you do your your work I'm putting in, in quotes sure. <laughs> If you do your work and it's coming from the right place, it will find people that are your people. John Kim Fay, preach on, he says to himself. Uh, isn't it all about finding your people in life? I think it is. Anyway, I want to thank my friend Joe Trainer for uh, having a great conversation and uh, a pretty darn good meal at the Marsh Road Diner. It's underrated, I must say. Um, be sure to check out Joe Trainer and his rock orchestra. They're doing Beetlefest in Philadelphia this year in August at World Cafe Live in Philly, so be sure to check that out. He's a great guy, and I really appreciate him being on the show today. And I appreciate you checking out this episode. We'll see you for year number two next time on Talking at the Diner. Talking at the Diner. Talking at the Diner.